Hello, welcome back to Sermon Notes. This is Garland. I've got Michael with me this morning. Hello, Michael. <laughs> A nod to Clark there. Yeah. Um, we are in our second week of First Peter, and uh, last week, if you if you were out because Memorial Day, we launched our our series on First Peter. I could not be more excited about getting to study this. Totally. Um, and so it's a it's a five chapter little letter that uh, the Apostle Peter wrote to scatter Jesus followers in what we now call Turkey um, in different kind of provinces on that. Uh, part of the Roman Empire in the ancient world, and it is really practical, really pragmatic. We said last week it continues our discussion about what does it look like to walk as an exile, to walk as one who has a different home, and uh, that's in some ways continuing our discussion that we've had since Esther and Daniel, and so we've been intentionally doing that, and this week we find ourselves um, coming out of the first two verses in chapter one into this long um really this long doxology, this blessing that he gives, starting in verse 3. So, Michael, you're teaching this week. Uh, give us the lay of the land, and we'll kind of hit some of the things that we don't have time for. Yeah, there's something interesting about uh, 3 through 12, which is in the original Greek, it's one long sentence. And so it naturally subdivides, and we're going to get right to this in the in the teaching, but it naturally divides into 3 through 5, talks about the future and our future hope. 6 through 9 talks about our present. How does that future hope inform how we live today? And then 10 through 12 is about our past, that all of this is built on promises um, that were made through the prophets. So for, for us, that's the Old Testament. And so it's really interesting to me that for Peter, this is one long sentence that encompasses future, present, and past. And to your point, Garland, it begins with the phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to our listener, if you haven't listened to the first episode of Sermon Notes, if you missed that first teaching, go back and pick that up because it's going to set our course for the whole study. Elect exiles chosen by God and yet foreigners, not dwelling in the land of your birth, the land where you're comfortable, you're in a strange place. And so in light of that, it's interesting that the first thing he says is, Man, praise God. Blessed be God the Father. It's a very Jewish turn of a phrase. Um, There are blessings to God offered up in the daily synagogue worship services. I know those developed later after the time of Peter, but even going back to the Old Testament, looking at the Psalms, that phrase, blessed be God, he's saying, praise God because of what he's done. And then he's going to spend the rest of this passage down through verse 12 unpacking what God has done through the resurrection of Jesus and how that impacts not just our future, but our present and even how we interpret the past. Mm -hmm. So... You know, speak to this just for a moment. I think what's so interesting to me about uh, the way that Peter's crafted this is he he knows, we're assuming, that he knows his audience is dealing with some hard things. Right. Like it's, he calls it a fiery ordeal. He calls it uh, the trial you're going through. Like he knows this. And I think sometimes we respond to trial, we respond to the quote unquote, the hard things with um, diving right at it. Um, and what he does is he almost changes their vision. He adjusts their perspective. And as you pointed out, I mean, he's coming out of the gate, not with, hey, 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 I know, I know it's hard. I know you're going through it, but blessed be the God and Father. So, I mean, why do you think that is? I know we're, you know, we're going to talk about this in small group. If you're small group meeting or in discipleship, like that's really I think instructive for us. So you'll comment on that for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I just 
pointing back to last week, I want us to remember who's writing this. What has Peter experienced? Well, he was a fisherman who was called by Jesus and left everything behind to follow Jesus and learn at the feet of Jesus. And then when the chips were down, after he had talked a really big game, Jesus, I'm not going to let this happen to you. I'll go down with the ship. Then when the chips were down, and I, I think it's kind of ironic, a servant girl, a person even less powerful than him mm-hmm. as a Galilean fisherman mm-hmm. says, weren't you with him? Peter's like, no, 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 And in Luke's account, it says, and the Lord looked at him. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that moment where he says, I don't even know this Jesus guy. It says he curses. I mean, even just that, the thought of me cursing at someone and then Jesus is standing there looking at me. And so that's Peter's experience. And yet, He's also experienced the risen Lord. And we know from Luke 24 and from 1 Corinthians 15, he had a one-on-one encounter with the resurrected Jesus that we really don't know the details of. Then we know that Jesus restored him to ministry. Three times he denied Jesus, three times Peter was restored. So this resurrection message, man, talk about a living hope. Peter, who felt like the biggest failure that had ever walked the face of the earth probably for three days while Jesus was dead, was in the tomb, Um, once he saw the risen Jesus, man, it changed everything. Mm -hmm. And he wants it to change Mm -hmm. everything for us. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying, man, think about what this resurrection message means. You've got this inheritance that God himself is protecting you for. God is saving you for the day that you get your inheritance. And so even though things are difficult now, man, this resurrected Jesus changes everything, just like it had changed, Jesus had changed everything for Peter. Yeah, it, it's, such a, it's such a perspective uh, adjustment, I think, for us that um, a Jesus follower, he says, I mean, he says there in verse six, like, I know you're suffering grief and all sorts of trials, but it's almost like he lifts the eyes of his reader. Right. Like, let's get our eyes up here. And I think so often that is a misstep we take is where our eyes are down on the problem, the trial, the issue, the culture, whatever. And he begins the letter. He's going to get to some of that stuff. He's going to talk about how we should live. And we're going to cover some of that as we go forward. But just notice the, the, this way of the exile, this letter begins with get your eyes up. And uh, we saw a similar thing in Daniel, a similar thing in, in Esther, get your eyes up. Yahweh's in control. Jesus is the King. Follow him. Okay. Sermon notes, is designed, you know, we have lots of conversations about these passages. You know, I've got a, I've got my little breakdown here grammatically of how it all works. And not all of that ends up making, you know, the 30 minute sermon. We end up having to slice and dice to get it to fit. So what in your study this week, are you like, golly, that's cool. I needed to say that, but we just don't have the time that needs to go in here in sermon notes. Okay. So one thing and this, this is in the sermon, but I just, I, I don't want to pass over it, and then I'll get to something that I'm not going to talk about as much. But what you're referring to, those trials, verse 7, and this is a good Bible study method, Bible study technique. The ESV says, so that. It's what it's the Greek word henna. We call it a henna clause. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's telling us you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith then there's a parenthetical statement, may be found to result in praise and glory. So why do trials come? Well, when we see test our faith, I think our first thought is God's testing me to see if I really believe in him. Right. Um, no, God already knows I really believe in him. The test is to reveal the authenticity of my faith 
not to God, but to me, that these things are going to be removed. Maybe I'm leaning on something else. Maybe something that I have been substituting for God in my life is being taken away. Um, Maybe I've trusted in my health. Maybe I've trusted in my money. Maybe I've trusted in relationships, whatever it is. I go through this trial as a believer so that I can see Jesus more clearly. And what that's going to result in is praise and glory and honor when he's revealed. That brings me to the thing that I'm not going to talk about as much, I'm going to touch on it. And you and I talked about this very, very briefly this week, Garland. But I want us to just think about an experience the Lord allowed Peter to have during Jesus' earthly ministry. You all remember Jesus went up on a mountain and he took his his core three guys, Peter, James, and John. So Peter went up on the mountain and saw Jesus. We call it the transfiguration. He saw him in his glorified state. He saw in effect, what the resurrected Jesus would be like. His clothing shone like like light. Um, And he was talking with Elijah and Moses. And so, um, man, think how that would have reframed Peter's view of who Jesus was. And significantly, it follows his confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But the transfiguration revealed to Peter, James, and John more than just a Messiah, more than just a warrior king who would come and restore God's people. He's God. He's deity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so now here's Peter saying, these trials you go through, they're going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the unveiling of who Jesus is. Peter's actually experienced that. It's it's one thing for, for me and you to sit here and say, man, when Jesus is revealed, and we believe that with all we've got, we've given our life to that. Peter's actually experienced it. Right. And so I'm not going to have a ton of time to talk about the transfiguration. I would encourage our readers or our listeners, I should say, maybe to, to review that passage. It's in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, just pick one. The disciples hear the voice of God himself say, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. Um, Man, what an experience that Peter's now laying over the experience of people in these far-flung provinces of Asia and modern-day Turkey, and by extension to us. What you're enduring the things in your life you don't want, didn't sign up for, they're actually revealing your faith, the genuineness of your faith, so that in the end, Jesus is going to be honored and glorified when he's revealed. Yeah, I think that's, help, that's such a helpful perspective, because I think oftentimes we can see the trial, the, the test, as you're calling it, as just such a negative, and, and not see through it, not be able to see the the words are glory and the praise that come from it. Um, and so that, and that's really good perspective. I, okay. I can imagine, okay. I can imagine somebody that's going to maybe say this passage on their own or in discipleship or in a small group for those groups that are still meeting, getting tripped up on verses 10 to 12. And I bet you don't have a ton of time to go into this. And now just to set the question up, cause I'm going to put you on the spot here to set the question up. The, I briefly mentioned in the opening talk last week that, um, Peter is doing something that's a hallmark of apocalyptic language. That's all I said about it. And the reason that I even use the phrase is, and if you're taking notes, if you actually uh, have your your physical Bible out, you can see even our word apocalypse, um, which means just to take something from being hidden, to unhide it in a sense. That's what it means, to take it and make it revealed. 
you have the the Greek word, and, it, and repetition is something to note, obviously, and I think it's a little bit obscured in translation. We have the word in verse 5. We have the same word in verse 7, might be found at the revelation of Jesus. We have the same word in verse 12. We have the same word down in verse 13. Um, and so he's repeating this idea of something's been uncovered now in what Jesus has done, and then he's going to connect that to what the prophets have always said. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's verses 10 through 12. It's a big right. deal for him. He's going to do the same thing in, at the end of chapter one, when he brings this Isaiah quote up. Okay. Here's where I think somebody gets tripped up. In what sense does Jesus fulfill what the prophets were speaking about? Is right. it, how do we now read our Bibles? And, you know, this is opening a big can of worms because there's different ways of approaching answer an answer to this question, but help somebody who maybe is wading into this for the first time to make sense of what we do with verses 10 to 12. How is this the case that Jesus was what the prophets were writing about when, uh, isn't that bad Bible study? Weren't, weren't they writing about something else? And now right. Jesus is stepping into that. What do we do with this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so, Verses 10 through 12 are actually key verses for our understanding of what Scripture is, how Scripture works, how we got it. Uh, Verse 11, he refers to the prophets inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he, who's the referent on he, not the prophet, the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories, which, by the way, Side note, notice the order there. Mm -hmm. Suffering followed by glory. Mm -hmm. His experience should be predictive of our experience. We don't get to the glory without some suffering, but that's a side note. To your question, the prophets were listening to the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that indwells believers today. Sometimes we have the idea that the Holy Spirit was somehow born at Pentecost. Right. The Holy Spirit is preexistent, as are the other two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, and he was active in Old Testament times, not in the way that he is today, but he was active as the Spirit of God, uh, inspiring, we say, these prophets, these men. And so, It's not a case of Isaiah goes in a trance, his hand moves on its own, he looks down, he's written Isaiah 53, he's like, what is this? This is my handwriting, but I don't know. God inspired him. He worked through, I'm just using Isaiah as an example because that's who Peter's going to point to at the end of chapter 1, as you said. He, God worked through Isaiah by the Holy Spirit to reveal things to him. Isaiah wrote the very words of God, which were his words, because he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So to your question, how, does, how did that then point ahead to Jesus? Was Isaiah writing this thinking, this will be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who will end up on a Roman cross? No, he has no concept of any of those things. What was revealed to him was that one would come who would be chosen, who would suffer, and if you read Isaiah 53 carefully, who would live again? Now, See his generation. Yes, yes. And so Isaiah knew what he was writing. He understood that. Peter's saying, here's what's been revealed, or to use the word you just coined, unhidden, is that (laughs) this was referring to Jesus all along. Isaiah probably didn't know the name Jesus. He probably had no concept of Rome and the cross, but what was revealed to him eventually proved out to be a reference to Jesus and Peter wants to see it wants us to see that's the case over and over and over and part of the big revelation is these were written not just for the people in Isaiah's time but for us verse 10 
They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, meaning New Testament believers. And so it's interesting to think God, when the Old Testament was being written, of course, the messages of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, pick your prophet, they were meant for the people of that time, but he also had us in mind. And man, I think part of Peter's point in 10 through 12, he ends it with this enigmatic phrase, things into which angels long to look. He wants us to understand how fortunate are we Mm -hmm. that we live in a time when Jesus has been revealed, the, the fullest expression of God, God made flesh, has come, died, been resurrected, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of this that was previously concealed, he's implying maybe even from the angels, we're now privy to. Mm-hmm. What a privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can cross that. That's a great answer. And I think you can cross-reference even next to that section, Isaiah 52, verse 7. Uh, that's the famous passage. Paul quotes it in Romans, how beautiful on the mountains the one who brings good news. Uh, Peter loves to work Isaiah in. And so he has Isaiah sort of sitting in the, back, the backdrop as he writes this. We can almost be certain of that. And so I think I think what is helpful about these verses, and you could you know we could go on a rabbit trail for days on how to make sense of this, and different scholars have different opinions on that. But I think we tend to fall into one or two camps, and both could be missteps. So one would be we look at the Old Testament and we try to read Jesus in every single verse. So this rock or this bush or this whatever has to have a Jesus implication. And that's probably a misstep. They're writing, as you said, to, to real people in their day, and we want to understand it in in light of that. The other misstep, though, is I think probably we at Fellowship maybe fall more into this one in, in that we tend to uh, look at the Old Testament and only when the New Testament author quotes from that do we then say, okay, now let me figure out how that works to Jesus. And otherwise, we kind, of, we kind of shelve it in this, it was for their time, historical, literal, grammatical context. Let's, and we get a little weary of how to work with that. And what, what I always say is, Jesus, and I think Peter leads us here, Jesus is stepping into a story, a narrative that the entire Old Testament is working with, and it's way bigger than a verse here or there uh, from Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever. Jesus is stepping into a whole series of expectations that have been building and building and building, and Peter wants us to see, as you're pointing out, don't you see where you fit in that story? You are in the part of that story that's crescendoed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So have the perspective that that's where you sit in the story. And I think oftentimes we can, you know, the Old Testament's sometimes hard to read. It's sometimes hard to understand. I think sometimes we feel bored by it. And that's all, that's all fair. But I think in seeing that, reading our Old Testament and seeing what Peter does here with these verses, it helps us to see the big picture. Like I think Peter means for us to read these three verses and go, wow, are you serious? And if you read those and don't have that response, then, you know, let's read our Old Testament and read it again and read it again and read it again. Then we'll come back and see how Peter makes sense of it. So we, if you've got, you know, questions about what that looks like, how we handle that, you know, let us know. But if you're talking through these three verses in small group, uh, I think you, you summarize well the point. Um, and so maybe keep us, keep, keep your group to that point. And then, you know, you can have those other conversations uh, as you go. Anything else that just, you know, isn't making the cut on the sermon, but you're like, man, that's, that's really helpful. They need to know this uh, as they study it. Man, I would say this is making the cut on the sermon, but I don't want our sermon notes listeners almost to, whether you're going to listen to the sermon or not, to just have this always in mind. 
I'm looking at my page here. I, I usually print the text out and then I can mark it up and highlight it. I would urge you to do the same. Um, every time he says you, I've highlighted it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know where you're going now. Everyone knows where I'm going oh, yeah. now because I always go there. You've been around fellowship for any amount of time. Here goes Michael's diatribe. <laughs> every time he says you, it's plural. Uh-huh. Now, does that mean that this inheritance is not for me personally, that God's not guarding me personally, that I don't rejoice personally in my child? No, of course it does. But it also means, and how much more powerful is it, Garland? It's collective. It's mm-hmm. all of us together. Mm-hmm. If you picture your small group or, or picture your whatever your family of faith looks like, and you've all, you're in a circle with your arms around each other, and we are going to go through this together, and we are going to be changed to be more like Christ together. And eventually we're going to stand and see Jesus unveiled when he's revealed together. Man, there's this community aspect to it that I just don't want us to miss. And so mm-hmm. that's that's not extra. And that is going to be in the sermon, of course. I can't preach this and not go there, but <laughs> I, I just want our listeners to have that extra time maybe as they listen to this to just marinate on that, that this is written to a group of believers. We so individualize. I think we hyper individualize everything sometimes. So diatribe, as you said, over, but um, (laughs) man, verse nine, obtaining the outcome of all y'all's faith, the salvation of y'all's souls. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that you and I as brothers in Christ are going to somehow be joined in that experience, man, that's really powerful Mm -hmm. and motivating for me. Yeah, it's a second person plural, which we have a great way to indicate that in the South. Um, I think it's, I, I think translators feel like that's somehow irreverent, um, but it's y'all or you all. And uh, it almost would be more helpful if they would go ahead and use a second person plural, even though it sounds Southern English. Uh, and we're we're great with that down here. Um, but I think that's, a, that's it. We miss that in translation and it's really helpful. And it, what makes it so important is at the end of chapter one, he's going to say, the mark, one of the marks that you're actually getting this is that you have a sincere love for each other. You actually have a brotherly love for each other that spills over into how this thing plays out. And so we might say it is necessarily communal. And to do to think otherwise is basically just postmodern Western culture. And we, like you say, we hyper-individualize to such an extent that we actually can miss the richness of what that means. And when we do that, we rob ourselves mm-hmm. of, a, of just a critical part of the Christian experience that God has intended for us. I do want to say one real practical thing before we wrap up, which is, so here we are, we're heading into summer. It's the beginning of June as we mm-hmm. record this. And so summer's a little crazy on the schedule side. Um, I hope you as our listeners are going to get a chance to do something fun. And maybe you're going to be out for a week and maybe you're going to miss a Sunday. Um, I just want to urge you, don't let that derail you. And so you miss a week, you miss two weeks, then you think, well, it's only 12. I'm just going to chunk it. No, stick with us. That's part of the reason that we broadcast everything. You miss a Sunday, go back and listen to the teaching. I was actually on the road last Sunday, uh, bringing my son home from college, but I went back so old. and experienced <laughs> the service. Um, and, and Garland, you broadcast quite well. Um, I have to say, I enjoyed watching you on my computer. But I do I just, not go watch those. I can't imagine looking at myself talking. I want to encourage you, Sermon Notes listener, 
experience this whole book. It's a letter. You don't want to skip two paragraphs and mm-hmm. jump back in mm-hmm. because then you can you can be off track. You can reach some wrong conclusions if you take just take something in isolation. So whatever is ahead for you, stick with us. Man, let's read this whole letter together and wring every bit of truth out of it that the Holy Spirit shows us in the weeks ahead. I can tell you have the same level of excitement I have about First Peter. We probably both need to calm down. <laughs> um, uh, it's awesome. These five chapters have been, we've been sitting in them for several weeks now, and just uh, I'm excited for what uh, for what the Lord might do in and through us uh, as we try to navigate a culture that that is in our home. And so um, let's get excited about that. Um, we have a better story and a better king. So with that in mind, uh, thanks for listening. As always, thanks for joining us on Sermon Notes. Have a great week.